What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with a brand new episode of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Welcome to the show guys, as always, thank you for tuning in, as always, make sure if you missed last week's episode, my alternative Rumble pre-show, or any of the episodes before that, do go check them out on demand, you can do so at lordsofpain.net, or at Blog Talk Radio itself, and indeed check out all the great shows that we give to you here on Lords of Pain Radio, they're all pretty awesome. This week, it's Royal Rumble, well, post-Royal Rumble week, which means that, of course, it's time for another performance art review, this time of Royal Rumble 2019, another marathon-long show, and I have to start off, first of all, by saying that WWE really need to get over this obsession with these marathon shows, or at least start looking at divvying pay-per-views up across maybe a couple of days, maybe doing a pay-per-view weekend. They need to find something, because sitting down and watching seven hours of straight professional wrestling is, I think, ludicrous by any ordinary, well-adjusted human being's standard, even if it is Royal Rumble, which, if you've been listening to the show and reading my columns, you know that I absolutely love, but five hours of it, bloody Nora Seven, including the pre-show, I mean, it's just too much, man. And that, I suppose, is really the first takeaway of of Royal Rumble 2019. They did well last year to keep the show to four hours. I mean, the fact that I live in a day and age where I say they did well to keep it to four hours shows you how ludicrous things have become. But this year, they seemed to give in to temptation yet again, and I think they really need to wrestle with what kind of a face Royal Rumble is going to be wearing as a pay-per-view in future years, because, like I say, you can't keep doing five-hour pay-per-views. It's just too much, man. It makes me dread how long WrestleMania may end up being this year if the Royal Rumble is five-hour. Like, are we going to end up with a six-hour main card of Royal Rumble and a two-hour pre-show on top of that? In which case, it's almost as long as a full working day here in the UK. I mean, that's just insane. But we'll deal with that, I guess, come April time. For the time being, I think it's worth saying that I thought Royal Rumble 2019, as a general rule, was a pretty fun show, a pretty good show. Indeed, if you want my initial reaction, you could check out my first reaction review column that got posted on lordsofpain.net about 12 hours after the show went off air. You can also check me out on Aftershock, which aired live on Lords of Pain Radio after Royal Rumble itself on Sunday night, so do be sure to go check that out as well. Again, you can download it on demand. Generally speaking, I enjoyed the show. I thought it was a good show. I don't think it knocked anything out of the park necessarily, but it was it, it was able to hold up its end of the bargain, so to speak. It was too long, and I think you could have comfortably cut a few of the matches out from the undercard. I'm not sure we needed another 25-minute Daniel Bryan-AJ Styles match when they've already had three in recent months. I'm also not sure that we really needed a tag team championship match. You could have easily done that on SmackDown Live or something like that if you wanted, but I guess maybe we're obsessing still over the so-called vaunted status of these part-time stars. Nevertheless, it is what it is. It was five hours long, and with two Royal Rumble matches on the card, perhaps it was always going to be five hours long. But as I said, like you know, like I said a moment ago, it, they managed it last year, so why couldn't they manage it again this year? They need to cut some of the fat and appreciate that if you're going to have two Royal Rumbles every year on the same night, you might need to start thinking about other ways to do a slimmer undercard. I guess we could start talking about the undercard first of all. I'll save the big Royal Rumble matches, of which I've got a lot to say about, actually, for the back end of the show. And not everything on the undercard hit, I felt. Let's start with the pre-show. I mean, the United States Championship match between Rusev and Shinsuke Nakamura was an overachiever, but ultimately just a pretty standard worker match. I guess, I mean, that's an inelegant phrase to use, but you know what I mean. Just a kind of a a mid-card workhorse match, to coin the cliche. I don't think it did anything particularly worth uh, noting about character development or the like. It was a nice surprise for Shinsuke to pick up the victory, though, of course, now we know on the other side of SmackDown Live that would be short-lived. And I did find the complete retread of the finish to WrestleMania 31 between Rusev and John Cena awfully dull. Nonetheless, it was a pretty decent match. Less said about that that Raw Tag Team Championship debacle, the better. Let's hope at least that the fact they decided to randomly put them on the pre-show despite not having announced them ahead of time is something of a signal that they, their interest is is pointed towards doing something with the Raw Tag Team division in order to keep the revival around. The real steal for the pre-show, though the show stealer, I guess you could say, if you consider it a separate show, and a match that I thought would have been much better placed to kick off the main card itself, was the Cruiserweight Fatal 4-Way match. 
a match that perhaps didn't have much in the way of build-up other than a few qualifiers. I dare say generic qualifiers at that, given the state that 205 Live has gotten itself into since Ali departed. But I thought that it overachieved. Yes, you had some convoluted action in there, some contrived you know, Tower of Doom spots that kind of played a dangerous game with the timing. You had a couple of moments where guys seemed to be stood around waiting for something to happen as the other dudes got themselves into position to do whatever it was they were going to do. So perhaps the flow of everything wasn't quite as naturalistic as you might have wanted. That tends to be the case with a lot of cruiserweight matches. Sometimes their ambition gets the better of their ability, not to say that their ability isn't you know, supernova in its own right, it is. But that can be the case. I think the real, the real magic in that Fatal 4-Way match, though, was the same as the magic in a lot of the night's best moments, which was character. This felt like an evening that was very much centred around character development, or at least demonstrations of character. And what I liked so much about the Fatal 4-Way was the way in which Hideo Itami was positioned almost as the main character of the story, more so even than the champion Buddy Murphy. There was that wonderful moment early on in the match when he he enters a, a ring after having sat out the initial sort of spurt of action and kind of takes a big breath and folds his arm and holds his arms out and looks very much like a juggernaut and a, and a threat and a menace. He was positioned in this story's own little pocket universe as something of an Undertaker-type figure, the intimidating presence, the intimidating threat that proved a danger even to the juggernaut champion Buddy Murphy himself, and the way that Itami was then produced throughout the action, I thought, supported that. As a big Hideo Itami fan, I absolutely loved seeing it, and I thought that there was something in that, and they could have ran with a character like that as the centerpiece of the brand like they very much did with the Neville, and in fact, I think there was a there was a an evocative spirit of Neville about Itami's performance in the Fatal 4-Way last Sunday night, and it's a shame as a result that WWE, as we now know, have lost him. Hideo Itami asked for his release, the late of, latest in a spurt of instances of people asking for the release, and he was granted it effective immediately, is my understanding. So he's going to go off and maybe wrestle back in Japan, maybe join AEW, who knows. But either way, it's a shame that they didn't do more with him, because I thought in the Fatal 4-Way, what you saw was a glimpse of the kind of character that he could have very comfortably and convincingly portrayed. He was the real show stealer in what was the pre-show stealing match and a match that very much warranted a position on the main card of the pay-per-view, I felt. Nonetheless, it was on the pre-show and, in fact, I would point to that. And, to be fair, I would point to the United States Championship match as well as both examples of why it's always worth watching the pre-show, as dreary as those conversations between the so-called analysts can be. Every now and then, you do get a little gem like that cruiserweight fatal four-way championship match. Nonetheless, we move on to the main card, and the show really kind of kicked off in earnest with two women's championship matches. The SmackDown Live Women's Championship match between Asuka and Becky Lynch, and of course the Monday Night Raw Women's Championship match between Ronda Rousey and Sasha Banks. By the way, if I have the the sniffles a little bit on this show, just bear with me. It's very, very cold here in the UK at the moment, and I think I'm feeling the pinch. Anyway, I get sidetracked. The point is, these two women's championship matches... Now, what I found very interesting about this was that the two had, I thought, very clear symmetry. On the one hand, you had the straight-laced champion defending, known very much for their in-ring capabilities, known very much for being dangerous in terms of what they can do on the canvas. And on the other hand, you had challengers who were boisterous, larger-than-life characters, people who had absolute faith in their own ability, even when perhaps others had a reason to doubt it. There's a nice symmetry between the two matches, and I thought it quite telling that both matches ended in very similar ways as well. I liked the fact that Asuka tapped out Becky Lynch. I was a bit dubious about that story, story development when it happened, but in retrospect, I thought it was a brilliant decision, partly because it helped further set up you know, the, the, the finish to the Women's Royal Rumble match that left everybody looking good, I think. But also because it gives Asuka that edge back. It gives Asuka that sense of danger back that she needs if they're going to run with her as the SmackDown Live Women's Champion, right? I mean, the character needs to have an aura of menace about it because that's what worked about Asuka's character so compellingly in NXT. And I know that some wrestling fans perhaps will get caught up on, you know, someone being booked too dominantly, quote-unquote, but as we know, sports entertainment is dead. And I think that in terms of, of, a, of a central character, Asuka has proven precedent uh, to be a magnetic presence around which other challenges can orbit. And I think 
while you might argue that the story told in the SmackDown Live Women's Championship match was therefore perhaps a utilitarian one, focused more on the end point than it was the journey to really put together something truly memorable. I don't think people are going to be remembering this story come the end of the year. I would be surprised if they were. But it was nice, nonetheless, as I say, to give Asuka that sense of menace back, and at the same time to give Becky Lynch a sense of vulnerability. If they're going to run with Becky Lynch as the hero of the piece, and it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not they do, considering the reaction that Ronda Rousey got on Monday Night Raw this last week. But nonetheless, if they're going to run with Becky Lynch as a hero in the piece, is perhaps the better way to put it, then it's going to be important for her to have a sense of vulnerability. Everyone loves an ass-kicker. But ass-kickers tend to only have a certain amount of limited shelf life before people start to grow tired of them in search of some kind of relatable flaw. By having Becky Lynch start her road to WrestleMania ostensibly by submitting to a more dangerous opponent, and an opponent who is comparable to Ronda Rousey, what you give is the the pending story a sense of upward momentum that I think it's going to need in order for Becky Lynch's empathy with the crowd to be maintained. So I thought, generally speaking, it was a very intelligent production between Asuka and Becky Lynch. A fun wrestling match, certainly, to watch. And while perhaps nothing to write home about, nonetheless, one that was very aware of its responsibilities. And it lived up to those responsibilities very, very well. Symmetry, as I said, can be found in the Ronda Rousey-Sasha Bank match as well. Of course, you had similar characters vying for the championship, and you had a similar conclusion. But ultimately, you had what you could call an outcome that provides the other side of the same coin, right? I mean, you had Sasha Banks tap out here, which made bolstered Ronda Rousey's sense of menace in her own right, at the same time as Becky's sense of vulnerability was being bolstered on the SmackDown Live side of things, while at the same time, Sasha Banks, you might argue, was done no favours by 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 losing to, to Ronda Rousey. I'm beginning to remember, I think Sasha Banks actually got pinned and didn't tap out. So in actual fact, what you had, I guess then, I'm, I'm basically changing my notes here because I've, I've remembered that I've misremembered it in my note-taking. I think Ronda did pin Sasha, and so that makes it quite interesting as well because what that means is you have a situation where, in actual fact, rather than having her own menace bolstered, Ronda actually had her own vulnerability bolstered as well. I can't remember the last time WWE kicked off a narrative in which you had two ass-kickers beginning their journey by being shown to have a chink in their armour, and that creates a very compelling setup for what could become a very compelling match come WrestleMania, because they've got a long road ahead, right? WWE have to now make this storyline last in an interesting way all the way through to the second weekend of April. It's quite a late WrestleMania this year, and that's going to be a challenge for a company that struggles with consistent quality on the creative side of things. To start it off by presenting them both as equally as dangerous as they are vulnerable, that creates an interesting dichotomy between the two, especially if Charlotte does get inserted considering the dominant performance she had in the Royal Rumble match that I'll talk about a little later. On the flip side, it's also worth saying that it's interesting that in this case, then Sasha, the the losing challenger, was the one who had her sense of menace bolstered in the end, was the one who was proven to be almost too much for Ronda Rousey. And I think that her career perhaps needed that shot in the arm, more so her character needed that shot in the arm, especially if she goes into this Elimination Chamber match vying for the Women's Tag Team Championships. It was a stark reminder, this match, of who the boss was, and that the boss still sat underneath the friendship with Bailey, willing and ready to come out at any given opportunity. You give her a chance against a championship and she's going to seize it. And there were there were glimpses there of the famous match she had with Bailey in Brooklyn. And there were glimpses there of the boss that dominated the NXT women's division. It's going to be very exciting to see whether or not that is allowed to continue on through whatever happens next for Sasha Banks. So a very interesting situation surrounding the narratives and the character development of both women's championship matches on Sunday night that sets up a very, very, very intriguing road to WrestleMania, certainly for the Monday Night Raw Women's Championship. And I'm going to be very intrigued to see what happens next, considering the unique way, as I say, in which Becky and Ronda have been positioned as characters at the start of that journey. Of course, we then had the Universal Championship match between Finn Balor and Brock Lesnar. Now, I said on Aftershock that this was probably my favourite Brock Lesnar match, and I think his best match. For me, since WrestleMania 32, I have a fondness for the Dean Ambrose WrestleMania 32 match that other people don't. But for me, 
Brock Lesnar's best match since then. For those who didn't have a fondness for that match, then certainly you're going all the way back maybe to WrestleMania 31, maybe to before even that, to find a Brock Lesnar match that was as enjoyable as this one. I don't really rate the AJ Styles-Daniel Bryan matches as much as other people do. And I thought what was interesting about this this Finn Balor-Brock Lesnar match was the uniqueness of its new slant on Suplex City, right? Because you had a new slant on Suplex City with Brock, with the, the Brock Lesnar versus Styles and Bryan matches at Survivor Series. But that was really that it was kind of this emergent underdog story in both of those examples. AJ Styles, excuse me, AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan get their asses kicked for the first half and then slowly emerge into a potential victor through the second. You could kind of see an element of that here, but I thought it was fun to see Balor come out of the gates hot. I thought it was fun how Balor then exposed an injury from Lesnar in which basically it was Lesnar's bad luck. I mean, I'm not sure that it was a story that did Balor many favours in terms of, of making you know, a believer, quote-unquote, was the tagline out of those who perhaps weren't heading in. And I know that WWE tried to present the story as Balor's made Brock Lesnar a believer and that's why Brock Lesnar overcame Balor. Excuse me, I am very tired today. I'm not sure why. That's why uh, Balor, uh, uh, Lesnar reacted to Balor's near win the way he did with the beatdown after the match. I thought that was just Brock Lesnar being Brock Lesnar, to be honest. I didn't think that there was anything particularly fresh about the production of his character in this other than the fact he looked a little bit more vulnerable than usual. And I think that's the important thing. The reason why this match, I thought, was more fun than most others is because it had a sense of... Of, of cerebral achievement to it that a lot of other Brock Lesnar matches don't have. And so you got the impression that Brock Lesnar was actually interested in doing something here. But more to the point, it sets up a nice prologue for the impending Seth Rollins-Brock Lesnar story that's going to be heading our way now over the next few weeks. And we saw that play out on Monday Night Raw as well. Seth Rollins, of course, the architect, a man with a game plan, a man who is able to analyse situations and think 10 steps ahead. Uh, we saw that in elements of his Royal Rumble performance, actually. And again, I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But also a man who is very wary, very aware of what's going on around him. He's going to have been watching that Brock Lesnar-Finn Balor match. And I think that was proven in the way that he immediately targeted Brock Lesnar's seemingly injured midsection. And of course, Brock Lesnar has a history of, of, of injury to that area as well in his match with Triple H at SummerSlam 2012 that you just know Seth Rollins is going to be very aware of considering the, the, the ongoing relationship seemingly between him and Triple H. That Seth's going to be going to be you know he's going to be launching onto that 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 weakness as he will perceive it. What's very interesting as well is that plays into a narrative that started all the way back at Royal Rumble 2015, in which Seth Rollins broke one of Brock Lesnar Brock Lesnar's ribs uh, with the elbow drop through the announce table, and then in the Monday Night Raw after I don't know if you remember it was a special version because of of weather cancelling the in arena show, so they did sort of interviews and Seth Rollins talked about how he'd picked up on a weakness in Brock Lesnar. Whether Seth has sat on that forbidden knowledge ever since quietly, I guess we're about to find out. But I thought that the Finn Balor-Brock Lesnar match set up a nice prologue as to what we might end up seeing over the coming weeks. And it's nice to see that narrative feed into the next narrative. It's kind of a shame that they didn't feel brave enough to go all in with Finn Balor's character. I thought that the performance and the way that the match was produced allowed them an in for Finn Balor's character to walk out with a Universal Championship in a way that did Brock Lesnar's characters no disfavours, but that maybe did Finn Balor's character a lot of favours indeed. I guess you could level criticism on it for them not utilising the demon persona and not taking another opportunity to further clarify just what exactly the relationship is between the demon and, and the man and the demon and everybody else. One wonders whether we will revisit Balor and Brock at some point in the future, maybe even before WrestleMania. You never know. But I, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure we will. We know we've already got one Elimination Chamber match now with the SmackDown side of things, and it may be that we just get that one eliminate. Well, we have two, actually, don't we, because of the SmackDown Women's Championship. So it looks like Monday Night Raw may not be doing a Universal Championship match at Elimination Chamber, but we do have Fastlane after that. So it's very interesting times indeed. Ultimately, a nice little brief story told, and I emphasize that word, between Brock Lesnar and Finn Balor, one that maximized its minutes to coin the cliche and one that sets up the next stage in Brock Lesnar's Universal Championship run and the challenge posed to him by Seth Rollins very nicely indeed. The rest of the undercard, you can basically have it. I didn't really care for much of it. The SmackDown Live Tag Team Championship situation remains largely pointless from what I could tell. I can't see how any characters were developed in an interesting way, considering the way that a match played out 
The bar were done disfavours yet again, despite being perhaps the iconic team of their of their era. Shane McMahon was produced as Shane McMahon is always produced. He did his typical stuff. And what's more, was presented as apparently being better still than even more members of the full-time wrestling roster. I feel like WWE have totally forgotten the way that character worked in its heyday back in the Attitude Era was that it always, you know, Shane would wrestle these matches and he would survive them. And it was always a matter of survival, but the reason for that wasn't because he was sacrificing himself, it was because he was getting his ass kicked, and WWE seemed to have missed that point. There was a nice little moment for Sheamus early on, though, a nice little character touch for him as he took issue and umbrage with Sheamus Man's blistering start, but all in all, I think this is an experiment that needs to end sooner rather than later, and preferably without another Sheamus Man match at the back end of it. The WWE title match, the less said about that, the better as well. Didn't really evolve any characters in an interesting way. AJ Styles, I have had more than enough of at this point. He has no character there, uh, certainly no character of any interest. His title feuds, title matches have all been largely homogenous for the last year. Last two years, in fact, I would go so far as to say. Uh, Though I did like the addition of Eric Rowan. I did like the fact that WWE continue to develop Daniel Bryan's character in this vegan, you know, crusader, this this eco-warrior character of his, and, and Eric Rowan, you know, looks, his look and his size and everything about that relationship, I think, is, is a great idea. So I did like that narrative development, though I think it's time for AJ Styles to move away from that championship and move into some kind of programs that will allow us to see what his character actually is made of. I think to have had a 25-minute match between these two after we've already had three 20- to 25-minute matches at the back end of 2018 was a bad idea, and I think that showed. The crowd response was very flat, the match was very dull, and it was just a retread of things that we'd already seen. There are probably ways to make it work for you, which undoubtedly will, I imagine, play off of the kind of analysis that I learned this kind of situation, this match on my alternative pre-show last week, but ultimately the match was was not greatly informed by the feud that had that had, and I use the word feud lightly, that had fed into it. And I think this needs to be the last time that we see these two men wrestle one-on-one. WWE have an out at Elimination Chamber, but we cannot cycle back into this heading into WrestleMania. The less said about it, the better. As I said, so I'm going to leave it there. I think it's 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 not going to be very well remembered. Okay, well, that that's I've whizzed through the undercard there. It's obviously with Royal Rumble, there's, there's always only ever sort of slight undercards. If anything, there was too much of an undercard this year because of that five-hour runtime I said. But throughout it, you got those nice little character developments. You got those nice little narrative developments. And I think it did its job well in creating a robust start to the road to WrestleMania that has some interesting points of intrigue to it. And to be fair, I think certainly on the Monday Night Raw side of things, that played into some good TV that kicked things off in an exciting fashion as we begin our journey now towards the showcase of the Immortals, even though I think SmackDown Live generally kind of followed things up in a, in a rather awful and, and stilted way. I'm going to take us to an ad break now. When we come back, if you stick with me, we're going to be talking about the two big Royal Rumble matches. First of all, from a genre perspective, and second of all, from the perspective of character and individual performances. So stick with me. Going to take us to that ad break now, and I'll be back in just a sec. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for staying with me. Before we get into the Royal Rumble matches, I just wanted to take a second and say that I thought the stage setup for this year's Royal Rumble was tremendous. I I love, there's something cool about curved rampway. They remind me so much of WrestleMania 19. And I liked the fact that they came up out of the dugout and I thought that played brilliantly into a a lot of the entrances into these two Royal Rumble matches. There was some very dramatic camera work going on that just added a nice little sense of exhilaration to the general production of the two Royal Rumble matches. Let's get into those two Royal Rumble matches then. I want to talk about them first of all from the perspective of genre. Now I've banged on a lot about the Royal Rumble as a genre match in recent weeks here on the show. I did a I did a, a breakdown of the five key tropes of the Royal Rumble as a, or even six I think as a as a Royal. A, I'll say that again. I broke down the five or six key tropes to the Royal Rumble as a genre match a few weeks back. I then did a real-time watch-along with the 2009 Royal Rumble to demonstrate those tropes in action and why I thought that was the best of its kind. Incidentally, I'm looking to maybe revisit the real-time watch-along either next week or the week after, depending on how the schedule falls. And this year's Royal Rumble matches 
were very, very interesting to look at from a genre perspective. I think a lot of people might feel underwhelmed by them. I know that there's been a lot of praise for their focus on the contemporary, but in terms of content, in terms of future visitations, I think people are gonna gonna find them a bit of an oddity. And I think the reason for that is because the way I phrased this on Aftershock and and previous uh, uh, sort of uh, successive rewatches, I should say, have only further bolstered this is that they were back-to-basics Royal Rumble matches. These were Royal Rumble matches that watched much more like the pre-92 versions, certainly pre-2003 versions, than they did the more kind of stylized, I dare say contrived versions that we've seen certainly since 2003. Uh, And even perhaps since 1992, like I said, in terms of the content, for the most part, they were on one level, and that level was the sort of the homogenized brawling that you would see in an 89 or a 1990. The rings sometimes got very busy, which again was, was akin to those earlier Royal Rumble matches. You've seen that crop up time and again in more recent versions as well, but certainly 89, 90, and 91 all became, they all got very busy in the ring with a lot of bodies at times, and I felt that that was very much the case this year as well. Interestingly, the women's Royal Rumble match, in terms of just the just the X factor about it, it reminded me somewhat of 2002's Royal Rumble match in an intangible way. It was one hour, 12 minutes long, this year's women's match, according to Wikipedia, which is a long time for a standard 30 individual, 30 entrant Royal Rumble match. And Royal Rumble 2002 is a very long standard 30-man match as well. And I think that play, that that plays out as you watch the women's match back. There's a there's a very strong sense of there being long intervals between entrances, longer than the 90 seconds that are subscribed. And in a way, I quite like that. You know, I like Royal Rumbles that feel Leviathan. I like a Royal Rumble that feels like it lasts a long time because part of the charm of a Royal Rumble match is the sense of marathon that you get with it, is the sense of that incredible superhuman feat of endurance that's demanded. I mean, the way that Triple H contextualized the Royal Rumble on Monday Night Raw I thought was magnificent, which is that it's a match designed to test the absolute limits of everybody involved. I think that's a great way to look at it. This idea that it is consciously designed to be to 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 be hard on someone's body, consciously designed to be punishing, consciously designed to push someone to their superhuman extremes. I think that's a fantastic way to contextualize it and I think that's how the women's match played out. Some people will say it's overlong and I dare say maybe they're right. I think from a meta point of view you could argue that it's that it's an indulgently overlong women's match particularly in the way that they produced that final two between Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair in which maybe Becky Lynch milked the sympathy vote a little bit too much. I'm not sure. I'd I'd have to assess that the more times I watch it. But there was a there was a certain charm and a certain likability for my part about the fact that this was a Royal Rumble match, this women's Royal Rumble match that that wanted to take its time and wanted to space those those entrances out and wanted to make sure that you felt the punishing endurance required. Uh, you know, it was an Odyssey version of a Royal Rumble match. I think they did well to introduce an Iron Woman in the form of Natalia. She maybe not would have been perhaps my choice if I was producing this. But the reason why those Iron Women, those Iron Man performances are so important, and I think I said this in my genre breakdown episode of SEID, is because they give a sense of chronology. It's all too easy to get to the back end of a match, and if there isn't someone there who's been around for a long time, it feels like everything before, say, the last 10 minutes was utterly pointless. By having Natalia hang around for so long, a lot of people may roll their eyes and stare at it and say, oh, they just did it to break Sasha's longevity record, and maybe they did. But what's interesting about that from an historical point of view, incidentally, and again, I pointed this out in my genre breakdown episode of SEID, is that you had the Iron Man longevity record broken every single year all the way up to 1993. So we may be looking at a similar vein this time around as well with the women's matches as as the women's Royal Rumble begins to find its footing. Nonetheless, I thought that was a good addition to the match, particularly considering that this was a very, very long match. This was a match that that actively leaned into its sense of endurance and its sense of, of cardio demand, and I really liked that. But for the most part, like I said, the content was very one tone, and so I think maybe a lot of modern fans in particular may struggle to enjoy them as much as some of the more recent versions of the Royal Rumble match. I mean, certainly compared to last year's Royal Rumble matches, the the set pieces were much much more sparse. 
uh, and like I said, the action much much more on one level. But that the old school sensibility of it, I thought, was really really refreshing and lent to that sense of back to basics. Like I said earlier, for the men's match as well. I mean, everything I've said about the women's match, I think, applies to the men's match. The men's match considerably shorter, clocked in at around 57 minutes, according to Wikipedia, probably benefited for that in a way. I mean, you, as much as I enjoy a Leviathan version of a Rumble, you don't want to be sitting through two on one night on a five-hour pay-per-view, particularly when one of them comes at the very end of the show. But nonetheless, like I said, I thought uh, like the women's match, the men's match, again, the action much more on one level than it was the preceding year and in more recent versions of, of Royal Rumbles. I mean, compared to 2016, certainly much, much more bit back to basics. But again, had the same pacing of, a, of, a, of an 89 or a 90, I felt, even if it didn't have the same raucous crowd response. And generally speaking, again, refreshing for its its contemporary focus. And that's, you know, it's worth emphasizing that as well, that when I'm saying that these were back to basics versions of the match, that applies as much to the focus as it does to the content, right? And what I mean by that is that you almost have to take both of these matches as companion pieces to 2018s. You know, here in the UK, you can buy, I don't know if you still can, but certainly you used to be able to buy pay-per-views on DVD in, in sets called Tagged Classics. I don't know if you have them in the States or in other areas of the world in which you may be listening to this podcast, India or Australia or wherever you may be. Uh, but Tagged Classics, so you'd get like Royal Rumble 88 and Royal Rumble 89 in a two-disc set, for example. I feel like you could take the 2018 and 2019 women's Rumble matches. I feel like you could take the 2018-2019 men's Rumble matches. You could see them both as sets of Tagged Classics. Because take the women's match... The 2018 women's match decided to be uh, sort of self-consciously a celebration, a recognition, a parade of women's wrestling's history in WWE, uh, an awareness of and a recognition of where women's wrestling had been up to that point. In contrast, this year's, because of its contemporary focus and because of its slew of NXT entrants and, and, and Mae Young Classic entrants and you know Rhea Ripley from NXT UK and so forth, it felt very much more a case of focusing on where women's wrestling is going to go next. So you get a nice little pair of companions there. I think you could almost say exactly the same about the 2018-2019 men's rumbles, but on a slightly, from a slightly different angle. Because in the case of the men's rumbles, 2018's self-consciously played on the generational conflict at the heart of the rumbles' identity crisis over the last five years. It demonstrated a lot of awareness about the angst that has been biting away at the rumble at the heart of the Royal Rumble for the last half decade, maybe longer, and it consciously played on that to create drama. This year's, however, said we'd Last year I recognised that identity crisis and I dealt with it and this year now, this is what's next. This is now the post-identity crisis version of the Men's Royal Rumble because again it had that contemporary focus. It didn't play on the the generational rift as it did the preceding year and it just got on with, quite literally just got on with focusing on the contemporary because it, it rolled out Jeff Jarrett, it rolled out Kurt Angle but it did away with them within the first five minutes of the match, first six minutes of the match and then from that point on it was straight on to, you know, to this generation of talent and you had Mysterio and Orton hanging around, you had Shelton Benjamin and, and Jeff Hardy hanging around but they were dealt with very summarily, their, their performances were largely unintrusive with the exception of the Nia Jax gimmick, and generally the focus, again, very much maintained on this generation of talent. So, interesting little, little. Uh, I'm going to say, I was going to say symmetry, that's not quite the right word, but, it, but a, a spiritual succession from the themes of last year's Royal Rumbles and this year's Royal Rumbles, and a focus on the contemporary, you know. You got down to the final few in each one, it felt very much like it was very aware that these were the stars of the day, you were watching a match of the day. It reminds me of Extreme Rules 2017, which I know is a bit of an obscure reference to suddenly pluck out of thin air, but the reason why I picked that up is because at the time that Extreme Rules 2017 happened, that was the event that was headlined by a five-way match to determine who challenged Brock Lesnar for the Universal Championship, by the way, and it was Seth Rollins, Finn Balor, Roman Reigns, Samoa Joe and Bray Wyatt and at the time on the right side of the pond on my columns I would say this is what a pay-per-view main event in 2017 to me should look like it's all contemporary talent it's high stakes wrestling a hell of a match driven by character and I feel like that applies as much to the both Royal Rumbles this year as well these were Royal Rumble matches that regardless of their content regardless of their style regardless of their production as genre matches 
were were very much Royal Rumble matches as they should watch in 2019, and I thought that was fabulous. So very much back to basics, and I and I wonder whether how I wonder how much of that is is deliberate. Like I wonder how much they've sort of drawn a line in the sand. Not necessarily because of what's happened with Royal Rumble in recent years, but because of the environment in the industry right now. But maybe they've drawn a line in the sand, and it's almost like 1988 to 2018, those first 30 years, you know, that's one stage of the Royal Rumble's history. Maybe 2019 and onwards is now going to be, or rather, I should say, 88 to, to 2017, and now 2018 onwards, that's going to be stage two of the Royal Rumble's history. It's just an interesting thing to contemplate, and obviously we're going to see now next year, because if we get another contemporary focus next year, then it's going to feel very much like we have finally moved on. And I said this year that, the, if anything, the need for contemporary winners this year was a more important than last year because this year was the year in which they had to prove it was a trend and not just a one-off they've done that and now may the trend continue on to next year i hope so very interesting times back to basics royal rumbles refreshing royal rumbles contemporary royal rumbles but also royal rumbles that wanted to do new stuff i think it's it might develop as a bit of a myth that these royal rumbles don't really do anything new and i don't think that's the case in both instances you had a very brave experimentation with what I refer to as the final passage of the match. This was something I talked about in my my genre breakdown episode of SCID. This is where you get a conscious kind of chunk at the end of a Royal Rumble match. It might be the final two, final three, final four, final five, final six. Sometimes it's as many as the final seven, but it's a it's a stage of the match in which you 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 know you get like the stare down, or you get a sudden shift in tempo, or you get something that happens that catalyzes that final rush to the end, that final rush to crowning the winner. It's the final passage. And in both instances this year, you've got a very brave experimentation with that. Very odd experimentation with that. I'm not sure how much it worked. History will be the judge of that. But in the women's, of course, you had the insertion of Becky Lynch and you had that whole story on Phil with her kind of being injured and, um, you know, getting getting uh, beaten. I think she was beaten down by Nia Jax. I have watched it twice, but it, now I'm sat recording. My, my memory is failing me. Um, and then, you know, can she make it back into the ring? Can she carry on competing? That kind of thing. Um, and then with the men, you had, the, you know, the Nia Jax thing think of it what you will I mean I thought it was a distraction I thought it was a gimmick I think it breaks an already tenuous fiction around the the Royal Rumble match itself because if a woman can enter the men's does that mean a man can enter the women's and if not why not but I'll I'll probably end up talking more about that on the right side of the pond this week nonetheless um, it stops beyond anything else it just kills the momentum of the match dead the whole match literally stops to accommodate that little gimmick Uh, and so the, the, the final four then sort of almost has to get the pace going back up from from having stopped dead again, and I think it suffers for that, um, as well as the structural conceit of having Strowman and, and Rollins on the outside of the ring, reintroducing them back into the match. But nonetheless, regardless of how effective it was or wasn't, uh, I think ultimately it plays well in terms of, you know, these were back-to-basics rumbles with a focus on the new, and that played out in terms of their conclusions and the way their conclusions were built. You know, it's not that they've just forgotten to do something interesting in their rush to focus on contemporary talent. They've actually tried saying maybe it worked, maybe it didn't work, but nonetheless, they're still driving forwards. They're still trying to do something fresh and different and new, and I really appreciated that at the end of what were such refreshing Royal Rumbles. And I have to say, having watched them both twice I've watched the men's three times actually at this point believe it or not you know I think they play all right when you watch them back I don't think it is that that jilt and I think the fact that you're watching you know Royal Rumbles as I said earlier watch very much as Royal Rumbles should watch in 2019 you know I mean that alone just kind of sort of overwhelms any other criticisms that I might have of of the matches it's going to be interesting to see how it ages uh, you know, I watched them back for a reason, but ultimately, you know, watching them back in a year's time and stuff, it's going to be interesting. They're, they're very unique Royal Rumble matches, these two this year, and I and I feel like that's going to pan out as, as history proceeds and we get more versions as well. It's going to be interesting. I kind of hope they become the gatekeepers for a new kind of Royal Rumble match uh, in terms of, you know, when I say that, I mean, again, focus on the contemporary stars at all times and, and uh, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Maybe the Royal Rumble as a genre will benefit from going back to a more basic content, uh, to more basic content in 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 the coming years. I don't know. 
uh, maybe it has gotten a little too contrived. I know there's certain LOPs who feel that way. I'm not sure I do, but maybe it has got... I mean, there are elements, certainly, of 2018, which I have a lot of fondness for, that feel overproduced. 2016 is horribly overproduced at times. So maybe it'll benefit from just pulling things back a little bit. I imagine... I tell you what it is. I think these Royal Rumbles watch, as I would imagine an NXT Royal Rumble would watch. Like, if you've got a Royal Rumble match in that NXT product, I imagine they would watch a lot like these ones did. And I feel like that's a positive thing, actually. So that's my opinion of, of the two Rumbles this year from a from a genre perspective. But I think the coup for both of them really isn't so much a genre issue as it is a, a character one. People are going to say that these are very simplistic Royal Rumbles. They're going to say not a lot happens. I'm going to say here, and I'm going to continue to say that that's deceptive. That they are that the content, that back to basics approach in the content is deceptive. Make no mistake, there is a lot going on in these Royal Rumble matches. But they happen through these kind of of of, of micro-interactions, these micro-moments of characterization. And the reason why I say there's a lot happening is because I've got a list here, let me count them, I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 performances, individual performances in the men's match, uh, which is almost half the entire field, that I thought were outstanding. And then on the women's side, I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 performances there, that again, I felt were outstanding. So you've got, a, 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 and the reason I feel all of these performances, I'm going to start breaking them down one by one in a moment. I, the reason why I've listed them, the reason why I feel they're outstanding is because they are so committed to character. They are performances of that 2009 Randy Orton ilk, not in terms of quality, because 2009 Randy Orton's performance is, is on another level, not in terms of quality, but in terms of their sheer commitment to character at all times. You know, it's that Bret Hart 94 spirit, that Orton 09 spirit, and the fact you got so many of them imbued so much of the Royal Rumble in its, in its small moments, in its background, with this fervor and this life and this commitment to the fiction that I can't remember seeing, and the fact that that couples with a back-to-basics approach and content on a, on a one-tone basis, I think actually makes them pretty damn good Royal Rumble matches, thinking about it the more. I'm sort of talking myself into loving them a little bit more here, but um, let's talk about some of these performances then. I want to start with the women's match, and I suppose, uh, you know, a couple of the lesser performances that I thought were still great, nonetheless. You know, Nia Jax, I thought, was was positioned well. You know, late number comes in, dominates, as per usual, is in the last three you know, doesn't doesn't leave without sort of making a show of herself first. I thought it was just, you know, just tonally on point. Um, that subtext there, it felt very much how Nia Jax would react to the events that occurred. And I know that sounds kind of sort of, you know, sort of eye-rollingly obvious, but it's amazing how often that doesn't happen in, in WWE these days. So really like Nia Jax's performance, and I really liked... Alexa Bliss's performance as well. You know, she she I think she got a couple of eliminations in there, including uh, I think Ember Moon was one of them. I'm just bear with me. I'm just sort of fact. Yes, Ember Moon was one, um, and I liked that. You know, she came in. She was a late. She was announced as a late entry, coming back from injury. She's multiple time former women's champion, one of the top names in the women's divisions, uh, and was very much a, a one of those second tier favourites I bang on about. One of those people who you wouldn't expect to win, but you wouldn't reject if they did. And I thought she was positioned really well in that role. You know, getting a couple of eliminations. I like the fact she had a protracted exchange with Ember Moon because, again, you know, you could have considered Ember Moon a second tier favourite. And it's in little moments like that that the fiction of any given Royal Rumble match can really reach that next level in those little interactions you at first don't think anything of, but when you sort of go back and start to deconstruct them, go, ah, I tell you, that's that's that helps make it pretty special. So I liked Alexa Bliss's performance as well. There was a nice little confrontation between Candice LeRae and Zelina Vega, which I thought was really cool that it played consciously on their uh, history with one another at Royal Rumble weekend last year, which of course also I believe won NXT Match of the Year honors uh, internally within the company. So you know, little moments like that, little performances like that, <clears throat> don't necessarily jump out at the forefront, but nonetheless, you know, help what make the tapestry of any given Rumble match uh, quite robust. I'm just looking at the time, folks. I may go over longer this week, but I hope you can bear with me. I want to make sure I get everything said that I want to say. Um, more prominently, though, I thought the Iconics had a tremendous, tremendous performance. You know, in their own right, they, they made an impact there. Uh, they Well, first of all, Billy Kay comes out. She doesn't want to get in the ring without a best mate, which is, of course, exactly what Billy Kay would, would end up doing. Um, 
Peyton Royce comes out an entry afterwards. Of course, Nikki Cross sandwiched them in between. Again, perfectly on-point performance from Nikki Cross tonally. And in terms of character, you know, she looks crazy. She attacks Billy on the outside because it's the first woman she sees. She launches herself into the ring, taking everybody out. It's so beautifully Nikki Cross uh, that, again, totally committed to the character in terms of her performance. Uh, and ultimately gets eliminated by a vengeful pair of Iconics. But it's the way Billy Kay runs around the ring and she makes big song and dance of herself and it's injected with wit and it's laced with humour but it is intrusive it doesn't sort of derail anything in the match doesn't derail any any characters it's just brilliantly surgically judged in the same way that Nikki Cross is that Alexa Bliss is that Nia Jax is the the standout performances obviously you've got to talk about Becky Lynch selling the leg and pleading with Finley to to get into the ring I mean I didn't feel like Becky Lynch the man would really plead with an official to get in the ring she would just go and do it right so I suppose that's kind of a, a point off of Becky but the way that she then garners the sympathy with the knee the way that she wins the match the the sort of the shock appearance at the end it was everything we never got in 2014 with Daniel Bryan really wasn't it I mean it was you know just a great character performance that played on her earlier performance that night great stuff the riot squad deserves special recognition here presented in a very unique way that i don't think we've seen a stable presented before it would be easy to think oh well they'll just get the riot squad together they'll dominate the ring throw a few people out but more so i loved the formation of their tactics once Ruby Wright came out because you know Liv Morgan comes in gets eliminated pretty much straight away Sarah Logan doesn't have much of a better better evening herself then they re-emerge behind uh, Ruby Wright in this presumptive kind of unspoken way you know uh, they're just there and they walk down to the ring with there's there's a presumption about it a kind of arrogant presumption about it that they have a right to come down back with with Ruby Wright uh, they've got these kind of impish evil grins on their faces and indeed just like gremlins just like impish evil uh, you know, impish, evil, vengeful spirits. They start dragging people out of the ring to help to help Ruby beat them down, toss them back in. I mean, it was just—it's a very simple idea that's not been done, I don't think, before in the Rumble, and I think it worked really well. And it helped set Ruby Riot specifically out again as one of those prominent second-tier favorites. I would love to see it transition into something of a more prominent role for the Riot Squad in the women's division on whichever brand they end up in after WrestleMania. So tremendous stuff from then, and again, totally committed to the characters, totally committed to what the Riot Squad is about, their sisterhood, you know, and and just tremendous stuff. Ultimately, though, I mean, Charlotte Flair, for me, was the runaway performance of the women's Rumble match, arguably of the entire night. She came out like an absolute powerhouse, and while some people may think that she doesn't warrant or doesn't deserve the position that she's been afforded by the company, I think you've got to admire the way in which her position and her character has been built to fill that role. I was saying to the friend I was watching with, you know, there's a sense, and it carried through a performance in the Royal Rumble through interactions that she had with Liv, Mo- uh, not Liv Morgan, with um, Lacey Evans, interactions she had with Kyrie Sane, interactions she had with the whole field, really, that there's a sense of you know every female competitor thinks she's the boss every not not literally thinks she's you know but she thinks she's it she thinks she's the difference maker she's the big I am like Asuka then they come across Charlotte Flair and discover a whole other level of competition and Charlotte's been built up in that way very very effectively regardless of whether you think it's warranted or not and I think as a result she's become one of the most compelling and easy to write characters in the entire company full stop uh, and that showed in this Royal Rumble she, the, she was a mach- she was like a Terminator she was a machine she was everything Drew McIntyre didn't unfortunately quite get to be uh, I have special for praise for Drew's performance as well but I think Charlotte's was just on another level you know and she seemed to relish it and I wonder how much of that is down to a performer who is aware of people feeling like she doesn't belong in the women's championship match at Wrestlemania and maybe is looking to prove a point but regardless everything from the confidence with which she carried herself as she came out and sort of held herself in the cloak you know in the aisleway and turned around and then charged into the ring the way everyone pounced on her like they used to pounce on someone like Austin in 98 I thought was really cool you know the chops she absorbs from from Kyrie Sane as she's constantly moving forward, the verbosity of her performance, she was very verbose, very vocal throughout it, you know, the, the sense of arrogance uh, as she was sort of taunting Becky at the conclusion there, everything about Charlotte Flair dripped autumn 2009 that night, and I think she was probably a victory away from putting in one of the best Royal Rumble performances we've, we've ever seen, quite honestly, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of praise for that performance, and indeed if I was to do my, my columns that I've been doing on LordsofPain.net recently, the top six 
60 Royal Rumble non-winning performances of all time, then you can imagine if I ever go back to revisit that Charlotte Flair's 2019 performance will be very high on the list because the 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 commitment to the character and the demonstration of that character was superb all the way through, as were all of those that I've mentioned on that list. Lots of commitment to character at all times. Keep your eye on those women that I mentioned when you go back and rewatch this match, if you do, uh, because you'll find that they're never not committed to their character, even when they fade into the background. As I say, it's that spirit of Bret Hart 94 sort of moving toward the mastery of Orton 09. Um, but then you have the men's match, and if anything, the performances, the, the committed character performances in the men's match were even more... Uh, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but were even more prominent. Um, you know, some of again, some of the lesser ones. Bobby Lashley, I thought, had a great night. He came out. There was something perfectly f- suitable, could perfectly fit into his role. You know, Leo Rush running his mouth by next to him, hyping him up as he as he marches the Almighty marches to the ring. He gets in the ring, goes right for Seth Rollins, and immediately gets thrown out. Like, and the way that he kind of, I think he botched the elimination, but he kind of pretends that his hand slipped or whatever. And you don't, I mean, to be fair, whether that's a botch or not, like, you don't see that in Royal Rumbles. You don't, and it's perfectly feasible that someone would just lose their grip, right? It's perfectly feasible someone would just slip. Or, or you know, it's hard to believe that in an environment like that, accidents wouldn't happen. So that, I mean, there's a you know, botch or not a botch, cute sort of addition of, of a realistic passage there that someone's big chance could get screwed up simply through bad luck. And then, of course, he pulls Seth out and Leo rushes barking orders at him and he throws Seth through the table and stuff. So he's got an integral role to the way the match plays out as well. But, it, you know, short, punchy, impactful. Sometimes the best Royal Rumble performances, as, my, again, my columns have tried to demonstrate recently, are those that just that make the most of, of even the slightest performances, that you should be able to tell exactly who a character is, even if they're only in there for a few seconds. I felt like Bobby Lashley nailed that this year, to be fair to him. Shinsuke Nakamura as well is another one. You know, he came in third. He won last year, of course. He carried himself with the confidence of a former Rumble winner. He eliminated guys like Angle in there. And again, look out for those micro-character interactions he has. The one that stands out the most, I think there's a number of them, but the one that stands out the most is when, uh, just slightly before Ali eliminates him, Ali does the mock Shinsuke's taunt thing that everybody does. But Shinsuke's reaction is magnificent to it. Just watch his facial expression, because it's almost like he's not offended that someone's doing that. Now he's offended that everybody seems to think that that gets under his skin. Like, there's a sense of irritation and impatience about it, rather than insult. Uh, And that, of course, eventuates in in facilitating his, his elimination but I thought it was a it was a production for Shinsuke very respectful of the prominence uh, that he had last year when he won and I thought you know to, to sort of bring him in early and then sort of get him out relatively early and do it in a way that bolsters the profile of another rising star I thought was all very clever so again great commitment to character for Shinsuke uh, and a respectful production for him as well even when um, Johnny Gargano Elias and Big E all circle around him and, and sort of square off against him because they recognise the threat he poses I mean really really subtle great stuff Titus O'Neil is another one you know he has one thing to do which is to get eliminated quickly by Kurt Hawkins and to not slip on the way to the ring but the way that they did it was great you could easily over egg that but he comes out he sort of does the, the cross sign he runs to the ring he stops he plays to the crowd and then he sees Kurt Hawkins underneath the ring, and the way that those two sort of performances connect with each other is really, really fluidly done, and a great little cute example of shared universe. And then Titus goes out, but it's just a nice character, committed performance from from Titus, who who leans actively into what he'd been given to do, and, and succeeds inimitably for it. So, you know, those little moments like that are easy to sniff at, they're easy to look down your nose at, they're easy to look past and say, oh, I wish it wasn't in there. But often they can, they just add a little bit of extra immersion to the fictional tale, to the universe being spun and created through the course of a Royal Rumble match. Um, so, you, you know, those are some of the, the, the less prominent ones. But then you have performances like, uh, let's talk about Alistair Black, who comes out, you know, and again, a performance where Alistair Black's a difficult character to define, I think, even in NXT. But he made a showing of himself that felt very close to defining it for you. He was focused, laser focused. It was remarkable how much time he spent in the middle of the ring. Keep your eye on that. He's and and in a way that plays metaphorically to how centered a character he is. You know, his sense of martial prowess and discipline was very much on form in, in his performance on Sunday. Uh, and of course, you know, he gets a big elimination in Dean Ambrose and he gets some cool set pieces to do with a couple of the guys. I mean, Alistair Black had some of the more interesting set pieces in the match, actually, from a content point of view. Um, and, and again, totally committed to the character performance that he's there to do. He's he's a stoic. He remains as stoic as ever. 
He's got bandages around his knee that had been sort of targeted by Tommaso Ciampa the previous night. Just tiny little touches like that that you don't necessarily pick up on, but that help create this this completely immersive fiction for you. Great stuff from Black. Uh, Andrade, uh, let's talk about Andrade. Gets to the final four, gets bull rushed by, by Braun Strowman uh, and eliminated, but is a guy who seems to... You know, Andrade's character arc has been about rising to the occasion, about how Zelina Vega got him to focus and be able to start fulfilling his potential instead of wasting it by partying and and so on. And if that's the case, then his performance in, in this year's Rumble is a beautiful microcosm of that character arc. Because this is an Andrade who now doesn't have Zelina Vega with him, but who rises to the occasion. He's in there for a long time. He gets to the Final Four. He embraces his role in the Final Four by inviting Ziggler into a, into a fist fight. He gets revenge on Rey Mysterio. He gets to eliminate, I think, Randy Orton in uh, a moment of revenge for Randy Orton eliminating him the preceding year which is a really cool moment Um, so again there's a lot of stuff that you're not necessarily going to pick up on that's broiling under the surface lots and lots of meaty subtext to a lot of these performances and a lot of these these individual productions that you can really start to pick apart when you when you start to look at this in in a slightly this match in a slightly more analytical lens a slightly more sort of micro analytical lens uh, but then we start to get to the really great stuff. You know, um, I'll start with Seth Rollins. Obviously, victorious performance. You might question the 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 logic behind writing him out for such a prolonged period of time, particularly because he's such a uh, a, a, a demonstratively well conditioned performer, and his whole thing is that he has this willpower that keeps driving him on. But I could see what they did. You know, they tried to to put him in a position where the odds have been stacked against him and stuff. Uh, and uh, you know, and he played his role relatively well in that. Um, there are there are again though a lot of uh, a little moments for Seth. The 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 camera work on his entrance is really cool um, and quite dramatic. He has that sort of rockers moment or that strike force moment with Dean Ambrose, which is really cool. And Dean hones in on Seth a lot through the course of their time in the ring together, as you would fully expect. Um, one of one of my favourite little moments though comes very late on. When uh, Ziggler and, and Rollins are dangling on the apron as Strowman looks to charge and eliminate them, and and Maverick and I spoke a lot about this when we did our Ambrose Rollins uh, analysis on three or four of uh, episodes of Sports Entertainment is Dead at the back end of last year. How Rollins has this ability to see ten moves ahead, and during that moment, it's when Strowman's charging off the ropes that Rollins, unlike Ziggler, doesn't just sidestep; he dives actively back into the ring and watches. Strowman eliminate Ziggler. It's a simple moment. It's logical. You'd expect a wrestler to do that. It's not necessarily specific to Seth, but considering his character of the architect and the way that just his his body language and he watches it unfold, it's all, you almost get a sense of him having had the vision and then seeing it play out. You know, like in those like Sherlock movies where you'll see Sherlock actively see the scene unfold or some some something like that. You know, it's just a great little character moment. And that's what I'm talking about when I mean micro interactions. Those tiny easily missed moments that just almost pass you by in a flash. There's a lot of them in in the Men's Royal Rumble this year. Um, And ultimately, you know, Rollins uses his tenacity and his his endurance and his his, uh, ring skill to be able to pick up the victory. So I think that's that's another good one. Uh, Ambrose is worthy of a mention here, I think. You know, we know now that he's leaving the company, but he comes out literally sort of, as he walks to the ring, just sort of swelling with with rage, with, with repressed emotion that just explodes into life when he gets into the ring and immediately targets Rollins. Um, he has a kind of a, a, of an outrageous, of a, of a, a, it's not, not outrageous, an outraged reaction when Kofi saves himself from elimination the first time. He seems to be equally outraged at the temerity of Alistair Black at one stage when he bursts into a vicious assault on Alistair. Lots of, again, little moments for Dean throughout um, and and a performance that allows him to demonstrate that endurance, that superhuman endurance that defines his character as well. I mean, there's times when you'll see him. There's a moment where he's straddled on the top rope, and you know he's only in there for a short amount of time. But again, it's a fiercely character committed performance from Ambrose that plays self consciously on the narratives uh, that have come to define his run. And indeed, it may be something of an iconic performance for for his own WWE stint, considering that he now seems to be on his way out of the company. Um, 
Drew McIntyre, another interesting one. Drew McIntyre's performance perhaps slips a little bit into the background more than we might have anticipated considering how much he was built up as a favourite heading into it and it feels once again like Braun Strowman came along and sort of took his role from him. Um, But nonetheless, it's still a great performance. His entrance into the match is one of the best produced entrances into a Rumble match I can ever remember seeing. You know, you get the conga line with, uh, with No Way Jose sort of dancing his way down to the aisle. And then the mu- Drew McIntyre's music hits. And there is, much to the credit of WWE and the way in which they built this character, a tangible sense of the mood shifting when that happens. Because it's so, you know, what always works well is when you juxtapose comedy and tragedy. Well, what also works well in wrestling is when you juxtapose, when you when you utilize such a sudden tonal shift as well. And that's what you've got. You know, you have this jovial, jovial tone. McIntyre's music hits and you get this amazing camera shot where Jose's in the foreground in one corner looking to the entranceway nervously telling his conga line not to worry as McIntyre emerges from a haze of blue light and smoke from underneath the dugout his sort of his long coat billowing behind him as this imperious music plays out across the stadium and he slowly and menacingly marches towards Jose and knocks him out with a Glasgow kiss and starts and just effortlessly starts tossing aside with total absence of 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 uh, conscience starts tossing aside these these conga line folks as he marches uh, towards the ring relentlessly it's just a tremendous electrifying moment and of course you know he gets eliminated by Ziggler later which is kind of a bit dubious and stuff but for the most part he has a a a, a a head-turning run that perhaps wasn't... Maybe it's not quite as powerful as you might want it, but again, keep your eyes through him. There's a lot of little interactions there and, and a fierce commitment to character yet again. Uh, I think Mustafa Ali deserves special praise as well. I know a lot of people are upset that he got eliminated by Nia Jax because, uh, you know... And, and I can understand that. I don't think that... For me, that's not an issue because it's a woman eliminating him. It's more an issue because Ali deserved better than to be an elimination designed to try and validate what was a bad joke. Uh, and I know people are going to disagree with that, and I'll probably talk a bit more about that on the pond. So if you want to uh, hear more of my thoughts on the Nijax thing, do do check out the right side of the pond this Friday. But I think Ali generally had a great showing. He got to eliminate Joe in, in what furthered their little storyline. He got to eliminate Shinsuke Nakamura in a great moment in which he outplayed one of the best players in the game. Uh, and he was an Iron Man. He was in there for 30 minutes. Uh, and, you know, you've got a real sense of his underdog showing. He takes a lot of punishment. So again, keep your eyes on him and you'll see how committed to character his performances as well. Um, for me, though, the three runaways, one of them was Pete Dunne, who's never not working someone's body part. I mean, again, just fierce commitment to character, even in the background, the way he pulls McIntyre down to size and guys twice his size down to their knees and stuff is compelling and seeing him in the ring against, you know, Rollins and Dunn, uh, Rollins and Black and Ambrose and all these other kinds of guys is just exciting in its own right. Um, but again, just it's such a brilliantly Pete Dunne performance all the way through. Even when he's in the background, he's attacking Rollins' leg, he's attacking Ambrose's leg, he's attacking everybody's body parts and, and picking them apart appendage by appendage, and it's just brilliant. Um, and Samoa Joe, uh, as well, I think is worthy of special recognition. Again, a huge, highly dramatic entrance, very effective. Music playing out, he marches to the ring like Godzilla. There's a wonderful sweeping, almost panoramic camera angle that traces his entrance to the ring as it cuts to the crowd, chanting Joe, 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 in unison with his music as he enters. It's tremendous stuff. And the number of times he kind of seizes the centre ground with a Kakina clutch, pouncing on people from behind in opportune moments. It's, it's again, a fiercely Samoa Joe performance. Uh, and finally, Boron Strowman. You know, I think Braun Strowman, maybe he's had kind of a, a, a rough few months recently, yet again, ever since he got yet again jobbed out to Brock Lesnar. Um, but nonetheless, his his performance was enthused, it was characterful, it was colourful, it was everything you'd expect a Braun Strowman performance to be. He gets a late entrance, he dominates for, for most of the time he's in the ring, he only loses because arguably he gets outmaneuvered rather than out uh, rather than sort of outpowered or outsmarted. Um, and it's just everything about it, you know, he's it, it, very, it reminds me very much of Charlotte's performance actually that same night very vocal very enthused very energetic very Braun Strowman it's a man who's relishing this opportunity of destruction he's been afforded so I've kind of rushed through all of those um I look forward to one day going back and maybe maybe doing a watch long on this very show in fact at the turn of the year or something and, and revisiting that and, and and pointing out all of these these micro interactions as they happen with the match itself but go back rewatch both of them with an eye on on the performers that I've mentioned and and keep your eye on them and and you'll see I hope 
just how many incredible individual performances they were channeling the spirit of Bret Hart 94 and and headed towards Orton of 09 that litter both of these matches. And when you couple that, as I said earlier, with the refreshing focus, with the back-to-basics approaching content, you get some some really quite charming Royal Rumbles, I think. I, I really enjoyed them. Uh, both times I watched the women's, I, I really enjoyed it. The all three times I've watched the men's, I've really enjoyed it. Though of course I would, right? It's Seth Rollins winning. My man's won my favourite match. I mean, doesn't get much better than that. What a rush. Um, but all in all, a solid pay-per-view. Lots of great character development. An exciting start to the road to WrestleMania. And a pay-per-view that feels me feeling very, very positive uh, for the future. In spite of the tumultuous events currently racking the, the roster of WWE. I hope you've enjoyed my performance art review. I hope you've enjoyed why I've broken down the... the uh, what I enjoyed so much about the the character development and the genre tropes on showing in various matches and stuff. If you've got any thoughts on the show, either in terms of what I've mentioned or the show itself, loads of ways you can hit me up. Find me on Twitter at LOP Plan. Find me on Facebook by looking up Samuel Plan. Drop me a comment on lordsofpain.net on a column or a podcast post. You can reach me via email samuel.plan101 at gmail.com or you can sign up to LOP forums and I encourage you to do so. We've had some new writers sign up so it's an exciting time to be in the columns forum. We've got a competition going on. King of the Columnists 7 to determine who the best writer at LOP is out of the the field that have volunteered to participate. I am indeed participating. My first column needs to be up by this coming Sunday and the topic that I have been given is Elite. So it's going to be interesting to see what I come up with there. So keep your eyes out. Sign up to LOP forums. Get involved in the best wrestling community on the internet today at Lords of Pain. Until then, I guess I will see you next week. Not quite sure what's going to be on the cards as of yet, maybe another watch along might be quite fun. Maybe with a with an elimination chamber match or a, or a famous WrestleMania match. Or I've got a Dean Ambrose match in mind that seems quite fitting considering recent news that I might go through. But we'll see what happens next week. Keep your eyes peeled on my social media to figure out what's going to be coming when I announce it. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this show, and I will see you once again next week. Thanks for listening, guys. As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of colour? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dock Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.